The history of Star Wars is the history of cinema. For everything you like about Star Wars, there is at least one film that inspired it. And we're going to review them all on Episode Zero. And welcome back to Episode Zero, the Star Wars podcast where we don't really talk about Star Wars. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I am a film critic. And welcome to Jurassic World. <laughs> Fallen Kingdom. What, what's the new one called? Jurassic World. Dominion. That's the one that's coming out. It's just called Dominion? It's Jurassic World colon Dominion. Oh, God. Yeah. Um, <laughs> They're just getting worse, aren't they? Anyway, a lot of Jurassic stuff is a thing. Uh, so here at the Episode Zero podcast, mm. let's, let's, let's write this ship. Here at the Episode Zero podcast, we talk about the various films that inspired Star Wars. And the implication of that premise is that we'd be talking about movies that predate Star Wars. Well, that's not necessarily the case now, is it? Because Star Wars has been going strong for over 40, thir- 40 years now. Over yeah. 40 years now. Yeah. Good for Star Wars. But uh, what happens is that sometimes there are movies that are actually made in that time period that would end up having a big influence on how Star Wars would turn out later. And in fact, in the really sizable gap between Return of the Jedi and the Ewok movies and the... Re- I had to throw that in. Well, <laughs> but basically what happens is there was the original trilogy, uh-huh. and then the franchise went fallow for a while, and it, well, it perpetuated in uh, comics and games and mm. books and stuff, but there weren't any new movies for the better part of yeah, well, about 15 years. When it comes to theatrically released films, Return of the Jedi came out in 1983, mm-hmm. and then uh, The Phantom Menace didn't come out until 1999. Yeah. It was a 16-year period when we just did not have any Star Wars feature films, although we did have... TV shows and yeah, documentaries and what have you. Uh, and again, the, the, video games, the, the action Ewok, figures. When it was persisted. the the second Ewok movie was eighty five? So yeah. you know that's actually not still not really closing the gap that much. No, that's a really really long time to have no new Star Wars movies whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And in that time, it was generally considered for a while that like, look, we're all speculating. Wouldn't it be nice if George Lucas came in and made some more movies? Mm-hmm. Am I right? Wouldn't it be fun if he made Episode One? Yeah. Yeah. That, that was totally something people were excited about and thought, maybe someday he'll do it, or maybe he'll move on to episode 7, or skip ahead to episode 23. Who the hell knows? That third, I wish he'd do that third thing. That would have been cool. Just skip way ahead, and we like all new characters, and yeah. we, have, we have to catch up with a new version of the universe. I think it could have been fun. But yeah. in any case, uh, it just we didn't know what the future of Star Wars was. And I think it's fair to say that in that period, George Lucas wasn't super confident either because he is a big thinker. He has a lot of ambitions, especially when it comes to the technology of cinema. And it just seemed apparently to him like technology wasn't there yet to do what he really wanted to do. And it wasn't until he saw the finished results, the film that we are reviewing on this week's episode, mm-hmm. a 1993 monster movie of all things, that George Lucas said, oh, I can do this. 
Apparently, <laughs> this was the film that showed George Lucas that CGI technology might be progressing to the point where he can finally create the kind of worlds he really wanted to, but was always limited by mm. the practicalities of practical effects. And this led directly to the Star Wars Special Editions and then eventually the creation mm. of The Phantom Menace. I am, of course, referring to... A movie about a futuristic amusement park where dinosaurs are brought to life through advanced cloning techniques. We call it Billy and the Clonosaurus. There it is. Welcome to Jurassic Park. We've made living biological attractions so astounding that they'll capture the imagination of the entire planet. The most phenomenal discovery of our time. How'd you do this? Becomes the greatest adventure of all time. Can I touch it? Sure. Universal Pictures presents. You feel that? Hold on to your butts. A Steven Spielberg film. They changed the title to Jurassic Park during production. <laughs> Billy and the Clonosaurus wasn't testing well. Also, it was based on a book called Jurassic Park. I said, why don't we just call it Jurassic Park? So they called it Jurassic Park. Billy and the Clonosaurus is a, a Simpsons gag, where Seymour Skinner said he wanted to write the great American novel called Billy and the Clonosaurus. And everyone's like, how did you miss Jurassic Park? How did you miss this? And why would you give it that terrible yeah. title? It's based on a novel by Michael Crichton. Michael Crichton uh, is an author best known for... Uh, I guess sort of his scientific accuracy. He liked mm. to write uh, science-based thrillers that tried to posit fantasy scenarios with a little bit more realistic science. It was the Star Trek approach. Um, we're and- we're going to come up with something that's like fantastical, but we're going to try to make it sound a little bit more plausible. And he had been part of the film industry for a long time. I mean, he, he, he had made movies before. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he uh, he he wrote uh, the novel The Andromeda Strain, which was turned into a really good feature film called The Andromeda Strain. I like The Andromeda Strain. Uh, he not only wrote the screenplay to Westworld, which is very much the template for Jurassic Park in a lot of ways. It's about a futuristic amusement park where a, they brought... attractions come to life and kill people. Yeah. yeah, a historically themed amusement park where the attractions come to life and kill people. I wonder where he got that from. Uh, but Westworld, Westworld also kind of invented the idea of the computer virus, which was not kind of a thing yet, so Michael Crichton made that a thing. Uh, and he also directed that movie in 1973. He was actually a pretty good director, um, and he did stuff like Coma and The Great Train Robbery. Um, and I haven't seen Coma. I feel remiss. I haven't so. seen it since I was a kid, so I can't speak to it in too much detail. But, um, yeah, he was very, very often at the forefront of interesting scientific discoveries and trying to find a way to turn that into good storytelling. And... Apparently, the story for Jurassic Park began, I believe, as a screenplay in the early 80s where he was going to be just about a guy who clones a dinosaur. And then eventually he realized that it would be so expensive to clone a dinosaur, the only motivation you could have for doing it would be to make money on it and maybe like an entertainment capacity, which led to Jurassic Park, an entire amusement park filled with cloned Mm -hmm. dinosaurs that people could wander through and enjoy and then get eaten by. Uh, And... Here, there's something about Jurassic Park uh, that uh, I guess people were complaining about, but I never heard any complaints at the mm. time. And it wasn't until Jurassic Park Part 4, mm. Jurassic World came out, where people started to say, this is what I always really wanted. I wanted to see the park open. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. You have a bunch of dinosaurs going wild in a park. You're kind of losing a lot of the awe. That's like a really cheap Ray Harryhausen era, uh, just monster mayhem kind of movie. Mm. 
And it could be argued that Jurassic Park is that. It's just a Monster Mayhem movie. But what Michael Crichton wrote in his book and what Steven Spielberg put in the movie was how exciting it was to have the dinosaurs. And we focus on a a small group of people who are going through the park before it's open. Mm -hmm. So we're just sort of seeing the test facility. Yeah. And even before it's open, things go haywire. It's such a bad idea (laughs) that you couldn't even get through the dry run. Yeah, so the idea of, no, I want it to go through all of this, and then the safety breaks down, is way, it's, it feels like a Jaws sequel. Well, it feels like a Jaws sequel. It feels like a Friday the 13th movie where we're just going to clean up these cabins and everything will be great. Whoops! Everyone yeah. get killed by a hockey mask-wielding maniac. Um, Jurassic Park was a giant blockbuster. I mean, it was huge. It made a billion dollars. Everyone was in love with it. I was in love with it. It made people super interested in paleontology again. Uh, it was a massive step forward in visual effects. It's also a really good movie, and we'll talk more about the various cinematic qualities uh, uh, of it. But I think it's worth remembering that it is a horror movie, Mm. at least in its construct. It's about people who play God, create a Frankenstein monster, in this case clone dinosaurs, and then they die. Mm. It is a very straightforward morality tale in a lot of respects. Michael Crichton uh, goosed it up a lot with a lot of really thoughtful ideas about how we could potentially clone dinosaurs... How the idea of the inevitability of systems breaking down leads to this mathematical uh, field called chaos theory, Mm. which is basically just a really great scientific explanation for why the plot has to kick in. I mean, let's just be fair here. Like, well, the, if, if the movie, if, the, if Jurassic Park worked fine, it wouldn't support mm-hmm. chaos theory. So the fact that Jurassic Park had to break down in order for it to have a plot, and chaos theory is just there to kind of make it look sciencey. So, uh, I understand chaos theory is a real thing. Yeah, Don't get me wrong, but the chaos. movie in particular reduces it basically way the hell down mm. to stuff doesn't happen like you think it will. Mm. Like, there's a bit in the movie where well, Ian Malcolm, played by Jeff Goldblum, he's well, trying to explain it to Laura no. Dern, and he's like, I'll put a drop of water on your hand. And it's where do you think it's going to fall off? She says, this way. Uh. And it falls off in one other way. And he says, okay, where do you think it's going to fall off this time? She says the same way. Mm. And he puts a drop of water down, and it goes somewhere else. And I'm like, yeah, you put a drop of water down. It's not the same environment. Like, it's a very thin well, the, explanation. The, for, first of all, he, he's just sort of sliming all over Laura Dern in that scene. That's because, true. Yeah. Uh, that, that's, because that's his character. Yeah, he's a slave. Uh, but... Uh, what I think a lot of people, because they didn't really get a chance to explain chaos theory that thoroughly in Jurassic Park, and it's being said by Jeff Goldblum, who's like in its sexy leather jacket and shades, so you're not really paying attention to what he says. There's that one sexy shot of Jeff Goldblum where he's just oh, sort of shirt open, yeah, shirt the, open, lounging on a little, thing, little beefcake shot of we, Jeff Goldblum. We see that shot online so often; it's easy to forget. Like when you're watching the movie, that shot has no reason to be there. That's not important coverage. Also, People are talking over that. He's not even saying anything. He's also uh, injured in that scene. Yeah. His, that's why his shirt is open. They were treating a wound. That is a completely superfluous beefcake shot of Jeff Goldblum. I think it's hilarious. But uh, what he's explaining in that scene is that uh, throughout a chaotic system, there's actually order taking place. Mm. Chaos theory is actually about order, not about how things will devolve into chaos. How yeah. things look chaotic, but uh, some sort of patterns start to emerge after a while. That's what the movie Pi is about. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the Darren Aaron 
Aronofsky film. Yeah, they're so complicated the human mind can't understand those patterns, perhaps. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. And uh, there is some order to the, the I, universe. I I was so thrilled when I heard him use the phrase "strange attractors" mm. in in the the movie because I read a book called "Strange Attractors" hey. that explained what those were, kind of. Uh, it was a, like a kid's sci-fi book. It was by an author I was very fond of that nobody talks about named William Slater. Mm. And he, he wrote a book called Strange Attractors, and it was a time travel book. And huh. it explained sort of a, a little bit of the the ins and outs of what time travel would really be like if you wanted to go to ancient times or yeah. if you would go to the future, how the clothing you would wear wouldn't look anything like you would expect. Or, you know, technology wouldn't be these big bulky machines. They'd probably be very slim. Uh he wrote a lot of stories about going back in time to fix your past. So, uh, mm. so you look into his personal life, and it makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah. But I knew what strange attractors were. <laughs> he said, "So, if you, are you familiar with chaos theory? You know, strange attractors. And a strange attractor, if you look at a map of like timelines in science fiction movies, how mm. uh, timeline will split into two timelines, and then each of those will split into two, and and so on and so forth, until it's just this big gray haze of nothingness of chaos. Yeah. Uh, that's a strange attractor." The chaos itself. Yeah. Okay. I didn't know that. Mm. Thank you. And, and I could be getting... That's what I'm remembering from... Yeah, oh, fair enough. Yeah. And then, indeed, the, the book, Jurassic Park, gets way deeper into chaos theory than the movie ever does. Mm. The movie feels like a simplified version of the book, but it's still basically the gist of it. It's a little less mean. Some characters live who die mm. in the books. Uh, there are fewer velociraptors in the movie. Mm. Uh, probably because of expense purposes. You know, it gets a little complicated after a while. Um, but generally speaking, it's very faithful to the uh, idea and the spirit of the book. Mm. Uh, an attractor is called strange if it has a fractal structure. Ah. It is often the case when dynamics on it are chaotic, but strange non-chaotic attractors also exist. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, but in any case, uh, uh, so no, the, I'm, I'm just reading directly no, no, from sorry. Wikipedia We're, there. But there's yeah. so much to discuss in Jurassic Park. It's mm. a movie that gets talked about constantly, but it's actually like a really fascinating uh, source uh, for discussion, conversation, and mm. critique, and so we're talking about the science right now. Um, when you talk about like sort of like the Jurassic World notion, where we want to see the park open, and I do believe that that is the natural progression for where you would want to go in a sequel, mm. because just finding excuses to go back to Jurassic Park in private or whatever, we're pretty thin in Jurassic Park two and three. But the idea is it's been some time. We feel like we've perfected it. We've solved a lot of the problems and we actually have Jurassic World open again. And then, of course, everything goes haywire on a grander scale. Yeah. So that's not a bad pitch. I actually have noted, and I, I stand by this, Jurassic World is basically a remake of Gremlins. Where, <laughs> it, well, you I'm, know, like, listen, it's... I'm it, trying, it, I think it's, there's an, a model even older than that yeah. uh, where it's... The idea no, of, no, like, the animals getting out in the zoo and oh, killing everybody. I, I, sorry, I didn't mean Gremlins. Gremlins 2, the new badge. Oh, okay. Because yeah. if Jurassic Park is Gremlins, okay. where it seems like everything's going to be great and, like, there's mm. a sort of Disney air of, ooh, ha ha, look <laughs> at this. And then things go really, really bad. In Gremlins 2, the new badge, the Gremlins all of a sudden were let loose on a more sort of technologically advanced environment. There mm. were a lot more characters who deserved a lot more cynicism because it was more of a capitalist sort of mm. uh, uh, indictment in that sort of old school horror way. Um, there was more wit to it. There was more mean-spiritedness to it. We really focused more on the idea of genetic hybrids. Jurassic uh, World is very, very tied into Gremlins 2 on some uh, genetic the, level, I the, think. The difference is Gremlins 2 is one of the best films of the 1990s. Sure. Uh, Jurassic Park... 
maybe also one of the best films of the 90s. Yeah. It's no Gremlins 2. But Jurassic World, Jurassic, I don't think is... Jurassic World doesn't have that same kind of fun. No, it, it's, it's okay. It's, I like watching that movie okay, but it's speaking, not particularly speaking good. Speaking of films it's about very chaos. Stupid. But, but, uh, but the original Jurassic Park was uh, very, very focused. And it's also, in addition to being a monster movie about man's hubris coming back to bite him literally with big teeth... Mm. Uh, it's also a film, and this is something that I really didn't appreciate when I was a kid. Uh-huh. It's very much a film about amusement parks. Mm. And indeed, we talk a lot when we talk about Jurassic Park about how, you know, uh, uh, what's the name of the guy? Is it Hammond? Hammond's yeah, yeah, the guy. yeah Dr. John Hammond. John yeah. Hammond. John Hammond, like, created the amusement park. That's the Richard Attenborough character. Yeah, the Lord Richard Attenborough. Uh, <laughs> Lord no, Richard, not, not just Sir, he's a Lord. I know, and apparently that doesn't count in the schmodown, but anyway. Oh, <laughs> you got busted once, didn't I, you? Sort of. What happened was I was playing a match against Dan Merle at the beginning of the year, and the question was who played yeah. John Hammond. And uh, he said Sir Richard Attenborough, and I challenged it because he was a Lord, thank you very much. And eventually they decided that they don't give a shit. <laughs> that, mm-hmm. They don't care if that's a thing. <laughs> they don't care if it's Sir or Lord. There's also a fair argument was made after the fact that uh, Richard Attenborough was a Sir until about a month after Jurassic Park came out. So I was right within one month. Oh, I was God. wrong okay. within one month. You you try remembering that factoid in front of a giant audience in New York City. Come on. Mm-hmm. I think I did okay. But uh, in any case, Lord Richard Attenborough. He's created this amusement park, and everyone always focuses about how, oh, he played God. That's what went wrong. He played God. Mm. You know what also went wrong? He made a shitty amusement park. <laughs> a shitty amusement park. Right from the get I mean, you can tell. Like, I love the way that the movie seeds like little things going wrong like right off the bat. Like when they go, when they're on the helicopter and it's getting choppy. Hmm. And uh, Alan Grant, played by Sam Neill, uh, he's, he's bad with technology. That really doesn't amount to much, but it's a gag. Everyone's on their seatbelts, and he has, like, two of the wrong connectors. They, like, don't connect to each other. Mm-hmm. That's a design flaw. <laughs> That's I, a problem. It's a design flaw, and uh, um, I, I've, I've heard, you know, snooty film students point this out. Uh, one of the conceits of Jurassic Park is in order to prevent the dinosaurs from breeding, uh, they're genetically bred to all be female. Yeah. And yet, because of the DNA they used, nature found a way. They mm-hmm. were like spontaneously change sex, and they would yeah. begin breeding anyway, and they start laying eggs. In that scene, he has two female ends of, oh, yeah. of the uh, of the seatbelt, oh, and think... he finds a way. I forgot about that. That is cute. If that's it's, intentional, it's that cute. is super cute. Um, but there are Whether other... or not it's intentional, it's, I mean, it's kind of hokey, but yeah, it's There are, there it's are other fun. huge design flaws that are evident in Jurassic Park. Some of them are explicitly stated, some of them are not. Mm. Laura Dern points out that the various, like, visitor center are filled with poisonous plants because they look good. Yeah. <laughs> That's not great design. Mm. Another really well, what, shitty... Well, what I love about the, yeah. the John Hammond character, and I, I haven't read the book, but from what oh. I understand, John Hammond is... Like, he's a little bit more of a villain in the book. Like, he's yeah. like, I'm here for the profits, and this yeah. is going to make me a lot of money. Yeah, in the movie, uh, he's just like, this park should be for everybody. Like, and in the well, book, he's like, it's for rich people. He's like, this this park is going to be for everybody. We spared no expense. He but also dies horribly in the book. I, I, I think really uh, bad. Spielberg, Spielberg didn't lean into this because he's actually not a very cynical filmmaker. But mm. I think when looked at a certain way, John Hammond is kind of pathetic. Mm -hmm. He is really rich. He has these like childlike dreams and it's causing death. And there's not enough of him 
contending with his own failure. Yeah. Like, there's a scene where he gives a speech about how he wanted to create, like, real magic from seeing a flea circus as a no, child. No, he's, he's, he ran a flea circus. No, he saw... I thought he, he saw no, one. No, no, his, first, his first, like, thing was he ran a flea circus, and it was all, like, mechanical and stuff. All right. Yeah, there are no actual fleas, and now he said he actually wanted to do something real, yeah. and in his desire to do something... And so we understand his motivation, yeah. but we don't understand how sort of how bad he feels about all this. We never got a scene with John Hammond about that. No, we and really don't it, focus too much, and that does suck. And, and I think Richard Attenborough could have played it this oh, way. If, totally, he's uh, a good actor. Yeah, he's, he's a wonderful actor. If, if we had a, uh, had a scene where John Hammond was just sort of like weeping or seemed really frightened and out of his element mm-hmm. because of what was happening, he didn't like get angry. So you guys need to take care of this. Like, oh, oh shit. No. Oh, this, this isn't how this was supposed to happen. Yeah. Like a moment of panic from him. Yeah. We would have gotten a better sense as to kind of how pathetic the character is. Yeah, maybe. But mm. he really, he really gets off the hook. Like it's weird. Uh-huh. How much off the hook he gets. Like, at the end of the movie, Alan Grant says, like, I've, Mr. Hammond, I've decided not to endorse your park. Mm-hmm. And Hammond says, I, I agree so, with yeah, you. So have I. So have I. And I'm like, okay, great. Uh, a lot of people are dead because of you, Mr. Hammond. Mm-hmm. And they're dead for you for a wide variety of reasons. One of the, and again, we've already talked about, you know, they, they weren't very careful with the poisonous plants. You'll notice one of the gags in the movie is they go on the, like, uh, uh, automated tour. You know, they're on, like, a rail system, and they go past the various mm-hmm. dinosaur paddocks, like a zoo. Uh-huh. And they go to the Dilophosaurus, they see nothing. They go to the Tyrannosaurus, they see nothing. And the whole thing is, oh, where are the dinosaurs? And I'll tell you where the fucking dinosaurs are. Uh, they're behind the tall foliage you put in the foreground of your zoo. What do you expect? Also, that's terrible design. That is terrible design. You never go to a zoo and also, see a whole uh, bunch of trees in the foreground. You so also, that you can't see the tigers or whatever. That's not a thing. That's terrible know, design. You know what else you never see? Like, tigers at floor level. Yeah! They find how high a tiger can jump, and then they make a pit that's ten foot deeper than that. Yeah! So they're in a pit. Yeah! Or they put those big trenches so the bear can't climb out and get people. Mm-hmm. Putting a, a, a fucking dinosaur, like, right next to you behind an electric fence? Yeah! Also raises they also like a lot of stupid things mm. like oh we've got all these velociraptors now I understand breeding them first before mm. finding out exactly how intelligent and dangerous they are I get it but after they find out that they're so intelligent and dangerous that they're not on the tour uh-huh. <laughs> why do you breed more they're clearly labeled mm. you've got all those embryos and they are clearly labeled with dinosaur names just don't make any more <laughs> they're not useful for a park they're fucked up and scary. Don't do that. Um, so that's, obviously, that's the whole thing. And the kind of like the whole uh, uh, thing is basically, and there's a line to this effect, a metaphor for the opening of Disneyland. When Disneyland opened, as Hammond points out, nothing worked. Mm. Nothing worked. There were huge parts of the park that weren't done yet. They were supposed to have, like, sponsors to, like, fill various pavilions of things. They were not filled. There were tons of attractions that ended up not being anything. I mean, there was, like, a pack mule tour. In the mm. original Disneyland, like the very first time. That's not a thing. Mm. That's that's gone now. Creating new forms of entertainment and uh, a wonder like this come with a lot of mistakes that you honestly can't even see until you open the doors. Mm. So it really just goes... To, I think the idea of comparing genetic manipulation, a scientific breakthrough... Mm. With immense power, uh-huh. uh, but something that we really can't appreciate until we actually experience it, 
Mm-hmm. And comparing that to the opening of an amusement park where nothing works yet is a really brilliant metaphor. Yeah. Even more so than Westworld, which is a fun movie. Uh, Jurassic Park is just a really exceptional metaphor. And if you know anything about park design and you're watching this thing, you're just like, why is there like a... Vi- why, why, hey, why can you get out of those cars so easily? In the first place, when yeah, they're when well, they're when they're rail operated, why are there like visitor this, center uh, 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 bathrooms right across from the deadly T Rex? That's probably a bad idea. What, what I appreciate about Jurassic Park, and this is something that Jurassic, if Jurassic World is about anything, it's mm. about the same thing that Jurassic Park is, and sure. that is uh, how commercializing these things is horrible. Mm. And I like that we get to see, uh, like. The, essentially the film's merchandise in the movie. Yeah. We get to see the park as it sort of looks. We get to see a dining hall and it looks like a chintzy designed yeah. diner, dining hall. It's full of thermoses and yeah. shirts and plush dolls. Some and, of those I think were available actually. And, and there's that uh, big glory shot at the end where the, the Tyrannosaurus is roaring in the gift shop and the big... Uh, disgusting banner sort of floats down yeah, in when front dinosaurs of it. When ruled dinosaurs the, ruled the earth. It's an so. amazing shot. Let's, that's it's, great cinema. It's so cool. I got booze when I saw it. It got booze? Yeah. Oh, no. I got cheers all three yeah. times I saw this yeah. in a the theater. Everyone loved that shit. Yeah. I, 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 that was a reshoot. You know that, right? Like, originally, okay. originally at the end of the movie, the Tyrannosaur didn't come back, and then they realized it had to. Oh. I was like, oh, no. No, the T-Rex should totally be- become a thing. Apparently, it was just going to be more of like a Velociraptor fight. Oh. But, like, no, that was a smart play. People like that T-Rex. Because <laughs> I've, I've noticed when I rewatch the movie, yeah. the T-Rex, not a villain. It's T-Rex a, is not a bad guy well, at no, all. Nobody's a bad guy. They're just animals. Well, even even as a... You think of the Velociraptors... They, they don't become as, bad guys until Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, where there's, like... Where they turn into Yosemite Sam. <laughs> no, but what I'm saying is the Velociraptors are very clearly hunting everybody and trying to kill. Uh-huh. The T-Rex isn't. I rewatched the movie and I'm like, um, no. The T-Rex actually never really does anything super dangerous to the people. It, it eats a guy, yeah. Hmm. But it's not trying to, I think. What happens is, everyone remembers the T-Rex attack. And the T-Rex attack is a triumph of cinema. <laughs> it is a wonderful... Uh, 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 cornucopia of practical effects cgi mm. effects brilliant editing innovative uh, uh camera work wonderful believable mm. performances uh it's a real stunner every time you watch it it's just thrilling as hell and it's so thrilling and it's so scary that these kids might be eaten or or, or hurt by this t-rex that i don't think we noticed that the t-rex isn't actually hunting uh, well, I mean, come on! It, it break, it, it's dangerous. It, it eats a few people. It eats one person, and here's what happens. Let me let me it let me break this. Lawyer, yeah. Let me break this scene down for you. The at the beginning of this scene, we saw earlier that they offered the T Rex a goat. Mm. The T Rex doesn't eat the goat. Mm. Later on, when they're back in front of the T Rex again, the T Rex eats the goat, swallows it whole. Yeah, it spits out a leg, but swallows it whole. Mm. That's a full T Rex. That is not a T-Rex that is actively hungry at this exact second. Okay. So what you'll notice is when it breaks out of the paddock and starts pl- and starts messing around with the car, uh-huh. what's it actually doing? It's playing. It's playing with that car the way any cat or dog plays with a chew toy. <laughs> it is knocking it over. It is chewing on the tires. The kids are waving around this flashlight. I mean, yeah, they're, they're dumb kids. Mm. I can't judge them too harshly. They're panic mode. The T-Rex is attracted to a laser pointer. How does Alan Grant distract the T-Rex? He pops a flare and turns it into a laser pointer. And he waves it in front of the giant reptile cat. And when it's got any attention, he throws it over there. So it will run to that side of your apartment. Problem is, Ian Malcolm, idiot, 
does the exact same thing, but instead of picking up the flare, getting the T-Rex's attention and throwing the flare away, he runs with the flare. Uh-oh, you just made it again. <laughs> Anyone who has a pet knows once you make it a game, you lose the pet's attention. The pet, any sense of discipline is gone. And now, oh, oh, you're, oh, look, he's chasing after my hand. That's how you get your hand bit by even the nicest pet. So he's running after the T-Rex. He's got the T-Rex's blood up. The T-Rex doesn't eat him. Could. It just knocks him over. It's playing. And then he knocks over the whole uh, uh, bathroom where the lawyer is. And the lawyer starts waving his hands around like another toy. And so he eats that guy. And I don't blame him. And then later on, he sees Ian Malcolm again. And he plays the chase game, except now he's in a car. So now it's real fun. And then later on, he saves everyone's life from the velociraptors. What the hell? The T-Rex is a hero. Yeah, he ate a lawyer, but... (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's a lawyer in this movie. You know, this movie is not kind to lawyers. It's a giant fanged lizard monster. Yeah, and it's not that bad. It's humans. One human, singular. Singular human. It has a taste for human. And yet, it Mm. didn't go for the humans. It went for the velociraptors at the end. Not that bad. He's not that bad. Fine. I'm just saying. Sorry, she's not that bad. I apologize. She's not that bad. They're all female. Yeah. Were you a dinosaur kid? Sure. Okay. Love dinosaurs. All right. I love dinosaurs to pieces. Studied dinosaurs. Jurassic Park was came along after I was already interested in dinosaurs. But right. after Jurassic Park, there was tons more dinosaur stuff in like bookstores and toy mm-hmm. stores, and that was great. Love dinosaurs. Right. I I remember going to the Natural History Museum a lot. And I like seeing the dinosaur skeletons. Mm-hmm. I I don't recall ever. I, I, and I was probably very young, but I don't recall being like a dinosaur little kid ah. i don't recall being a car little kid either but i evidently i did have one of those phases i, so. I had some matchbox cars yeah. but i was never a car kid yeah. um i was a i was an action figure kid and i was a dinosaur kid yeah and was, those were probably my two big ones yeah I, I was all about you know and comics i guess fantasy toys but yeah i don't yeah. think I, I had i guess i had some dinosaurs and i know that the reason jurassic park has persisted and one of the reasons it was a big enough hit was there's something sort of it, it, a lot of, uh, that's in a lot of little kids where they're just sort of into dinosaurs. They like yeah. the idea of these gigantic monsters that once existed. Well, and also paleontology and, as a job mm. looks fun. Oh, I get to play in the sand and use all these little tools mm. and like find treasure of the ages. And there's the, that's well, fun. There's that one wonderful scene right at the beginning that paleontologists love where they they find an entire dinosaur skeleton. Yeah. Like in this perfect... Yeah, uh, it's perfect death pose. Yeah, which has happened like what twice in history? Like, like, like never. They find like <laughs> they're lucky if they find like a few in a pile somewhere. Yeah, like a few. Bo- I mean, they're not even bones; they're rock. Um, yeah. Dinosaurs had to die uh, in a very specific way to be but, preserved long enough that we can find any remains at all right now. Uh, which is why a we don't find a lot of them, all things considered, and b we've probably only discovered a very small fraction of the actual number of dinosaur species that existed. Mm. Because they kind of had to die, like, near water or under other, like, right, similar circumstances. Right. So, you know, dinosaurs that lived in different climates or different, like, locales hmm. probably just didn't exist anymore. Like, their bones are just gone, gone, yeah. gone. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, but I, what I'm, the point I'm trying to make is I'm wondering if there are any people out there who weren't dinosaur people hmm. who just weren't turned on by Jurassic Park. Because I saw Jurassic Park when it came out in 1993. I was in high school already. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I saw an exciting adventure film. Mm-hmm. And it was like, oh, well, that was really cool. It was a big, slick action movie. But I was always a little baffled by how big it got. Mm. And for the longest time, I was thinking, why did it get this big? 
it's just dinosaurs. Like oh, they're they're cool. not they're not like weird mutant dinosaurs. They're not doing anything like new with the dinosaur concept. It's we just made dinosaurs. But think about this. It's just dinosaurs. No, no, but think think about this. No, We've I, had I, other dinosaur movies. We've had other dinosaur yeah. movies over the years. We've had everything from King Kong to the Valley of Guanji mm. uh, to Gertie the Dinosaur, first animated film of its kind. Mm. Um, this was. All of a sudden, oh, look at those cool dinosaur special effects. That's not a thing. All of a sudden, this mm. was, that shit looks real. Yeah. And it does. And this is something that's really incredible, where Jurassic Park was, oh man, there were other movies that used CG before Jurassic Park. Mm. Tron, The Last Starfighter, Return of the Jedi has some CGI in it. This was the one where we're going to make CGI creatures. And I think they were smart to use a combination of CGI and practicals. Mm. to sort of smooth over the bits where CGI maybe wasn't there yet. But there's still a lot of CGI. And this opening shot where it actually takes a while to see the first dinosaur. Because mm. they build it up a lot. There's like things about dinosaurs like in cages and people talking about the dinosaurs and hinting at the dinosaurs. And when we finally see a dinosaur, it's such a great bit because Spielberg lets the, all the characters see it first. Mm. We don't just see it. We get to see them slowly realize there's a dinosaur over there. And he cast this movie so beautifully because a lot of these actors are people that we know. Mm. They weren't big stars at the time. Like Laura Dern and uh, Sam Neill couldn't open a movie. They probably couldn't open a movie now. But we know who they are now. Mm. Laura Dern, they'd already been in stuff. But like, they weren't like, he could have gotten Tom Cruise and Harrison Ford for this kind of movie. He didn't. He focused on people who could, A, plausibly be eaten because they're not that famous. And B, people who could just sell these moments. Mm. And they are so fucking convincing when they first see that Brachiosaurus. And when the camera whips around and we see a full shot of a Mm. fully moving Brachiosaurus, an incredibly low angle, John Williams music just Mm. punching into the theater of just how fucking amazing this is, it sells. And the CGI still looks pretty good by today's standards. That's the thing that amazes me about this. And and, uh, this is what I was going to segue into. Uh, the reason why a lot of people latched onto this movie, even though it's just dinosaurs, mm-hmm. was that they were convincing dinosaurs for exactly. the first time. Major step forward uh, in visual effects. Yeah, uh, and the the bracket, some of the CGI, like the texture, isn't quite as sophisticated as is, no. as it is today. No. But for 1993, this was really really great. And there's still and, a lot uh, of they, movies where it still this still looks better than stuff we're getting today. Sometimes, yeah, because they actually decided to take their time and figure out how they were going to frame certain shots. And, yep. Uh, understood that they couldn't do just CGI. Uh, the full-bodied shots of the Tyrannosaurus are CGI. Mm. When we see just a piece, like a foot or a head, or that's, eyeball, that's yeah. a giant puppet. Yeah, it's a giant practical effects. They combined yeah. them as uh, this was from the era in that ninety in the nineties when we had sort of an everything like every tool was still in the toolbox. Yeah, uh, I think the film with the best special effects of all time might still be Titanic for that reason. Perhaps. Just Perhaps. because they, they did use everything and they yeah. actually made you think that ship was real. I, uh, I got to meet Stan Winston once. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just a, like a Comic-Con thing. But um, he told an amazing story when they were shooting Jurassic Park 3, which is a stupid movie but has some fun dinosaur stuff in it. They had a new uh, dinosaur called the Spinosaurus, which is basically a T-Rex with a spine and it's bigger. Yeah. Not that well, T-Rex has a spine, but you know what I mean? Like a big raised spine. Yeah, it's a big, big fan on its back. Um, And apparently what happened was they built them in pieces and then like assembled them where they were going to be like having these giant robots together. Mm. 
And then what they realized when they were done shooting the film is there is no way to transport these things at their current size, and there's no way to disassemble them without destroying them. Mm. So according to Stan Winston... <laughs> they just left the dinosaurs there? <laughs> no. They played Rock'em Sock'em Robots <laughs> with full-size dinosaur animatronics. As, That's the well coolest thing ever! Why is there no footage of that? That's amazing! Holy shit! Damn, they, that's fun. They, they had to blow up that that village they built out in the jungle in Apocalypse Now. And yeah. you, there's cuts of the movie where you can see it blowing up. Yeah. It's they, they, they filmed that. Um, that's, so, that, that's not yeah. true. But they, like, they didn't do that. But there were a lot of, anyway, there were a lot of techniques mm. that they were pioneering, and they were trying to incorporate elements of visual effects, like stop-motion visual effects. And they even, if memory serves, they even hired some stop-motion uh, animators in order to uh, help them figure out like how the dinosaurs should move. Mm. Because animating characters in CGI was still kind of new and stop motion animators have been doing that kind of motion for a long time. Um, there's some really wonderful like behind the scenes stuff of Jurassic Park where they talk about like how like a lot of things in the movie mm. that we kind of take for granted were insanely complicated. Like there's this iconic shot of when the Tyrannosaurus is walking around and it creates ripples in water mm. and Spielberg wanted a shot of like a cup of water and then there's just this little ripple mm. perfectly centered ripples out. And he was like, I want this shot. And this is not something they could do in CGI or it wasn't worth trying. Mm. And so he said, I want the shot. And he left it to people to figure out how to do it. And the way that they got that shot, they find, a guy was trying to figure out how to do this. And what he did was he took a guitar, set it down, put a cup of water on the guitar, and plucked a string. That's easy enough. That's, yeah. Well, it's easy enough once you know how to do it. That's, figuring that's out a, that that's something some, to do is hard. Some, that's, that's some movie magic right yeah, there. Yeah, that's really, really cool. So that's what they did for that. They had like like a reverberation, like a mm. like a string pluck. Just boom. Little things like that. Yeah. Innovative. Clever. Fascinating. And all put together in such a way that they feel really striking. I think the other thing that makes Jurassic Park such a huge hit for the time, besides the fact that people like dinosaurs, fair mm. enough. CGI was astounding. Mm. I, re I was in the theater opening weekend. Wow. Like, it was a mind blower. Like, I, haven't, I don't think I've had my mind blown by visual effects like that since. Mm. I think after Jurassic Park, mind-blowing visual effects are just like, yeah, I assume we can do pretty much anything now. Yeah. That's Jurassic Park. But, like, at the time, didn't think that was possible. Holy crap. It's also really well made. Like, just top to bottom, not just the monster stuff. The characters are well-written and, and nicely acted. Mm. It's wonderfully introduced, like, all of these disparate elements building up to the giant Jurassic Park fight. The first, like, more than a third of the movie is just exposition. Yeah. It's just set up. It's just explaining how dinosaurs possibly could exist. And they really truncated that explanation from the novel. Like, they actually truncated a lot of things from the novel. Like, it's weird the stuff that they sort of take for granted. Like when they talk about like, oh yeah, well we don't have all of dinosaur DNA. So we took the DNA from frogs. And I'm like, why? Mm. They have almost nothing in common with frogs. And it turns out when you read the book that frogs were just one of the many types of animals that they used oh, okay. in order to recreate Wasn't there them. a line of dialogue about how like frog DNA was like easier to deal with not in the movie oh, yeah. there might have been one in the in the book it's been a while since i've read it but in the movie they just sort of throw in frogs even though dinosaurs at the time many people believed they were more closely related to reptiles and now we know they're way more closely related to birds Jurassic park was ahead of the curve on that um 
Also, one thing I like that they did... One smart thing that they did in Jurassic World. There's a line in Jurassic World mm. where they point out... We're talking about, like, hey, these aren't... This dinosaur isn't accurate. You invented this dinosaur. Mm. To which B.D. Wong says, uh, yeah, they should also have feathers, shouldn't they? <laughs> but we decided to make them because... not have feathers because that's what people expected. Uh-huh. So we're really not... <laughs> scientific accuracy was never was never part of the equation. Mm-mm. And I'm like, fair play, Jurassic World. That's, <laughs> that's, a, that's a nice little retcon. He did that good. Um, but uh, where was I going with this? I was talking about science and stuff, and they did the science. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. I don't, need, I don't, I don't remember. Oh, but it, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, well made. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know what? I agree with you there. It's We're so on. exquisitely... Co- oh, but oh, I was talking about the other things that they take for granted. Okay. In the book, Jurassic Park, um, Alan Grant doesn't know anything about how dinosaurs would actually exist. And so when the, t- the T-Rex is attacking, mm. and he's got, like, the kids, and they, they don't move, not because he knows Tyrannosaurs can only see because they have vision-based eyesight. Uh uh-huh. Because there's literally no way he could... Movement-based vision. There's yeah. literally no way he could know that unless he got an actual Tyrannosaur eye. Uh-huh. So there's that's... The idea is he's wondering why the T-Rex isn't attacking them, and this is a theory he comes up with. All right. In the movie, when Alan Grant is, like, explaining to a kid why a Velociraptor is scary, because before this movie came out, nobody knew what the fuck a Velociraptor mm. was, let alone thought it was the scariest dinosaur ever. I also never heard anybody refer to a Tyrannosaur as a T-Rex. That I'd heard. Which, okay. That I, that's a kid way of which, doing it. I've heard that before. So, sounded really corny to me. A T-Rex. Yeah, that, I'd heard that before. Like the but, band? Yeah, it's yeah. like... Well, why do you think the band came from? Yeah. <laughs> it came from people calling it a T-Rex. Right, oh. um, but uh, there's a bit at the beginning where he is selling... This kid who doesn't think Velociraptors sound scary mm. and therefore selling the audience on the idea of a Velociraptor and why it is scary. And he says, picture it. Mm. You're in dinosaur times. Yeah, and you, you wander across and you see a Velociraptor. And you freeze because you assume that his vision is based on movement. You know, like, like a T-Rex. T-Rex yeah. Like we know that. Mm. What a fucking... Can, what a wonderful <laughs> lie to just tell the audience that that's true. Uh. When Michael Crichton wrote the novel uh, The Lost World, the sequel to Jurassic Park, hmm. it's... Which was based on the, the success of the movie. Yeah. It wasn't like a story he needed to tell. It, it, it's not. It's actually a really fun read, though, partly because he fills it with digs at the movie. <laughs> and one of the things that happens in the book is, like, they're just fucking around with the T-Rexes, or I think they're trying to steal a T-Rex egg. Hmm. And a guy, the T-Rex sees them, and the guy freezes, and he isn't moving at all. Hmm. And someone's like, is on like an intercom watching this on a security camera, and he's like, why is he freezing? And the guy goes, probably because he believed that idiot Alan Grant with that stupid movement-based vision thing. It's a giant monster. It couldn't walk around like that. Many things, a lot of movement wouldn't go past its vision anyway. So the, and he, they say in that book, the reason the T-Rex didn't attack Grant was it wasn't hungry. It had just eaten a goat. And a lawyer, actually, by that point. So it's totally not hunting. Um, so, yeah, Crichton, Crichton played a lot. With uh, mm. with the silly things that did not work, yeah. uh, even played with that famous scene where uh, the Velociraptors are trying to break in, and the adults are like, "Oh, if I could only get that gun, we could shoot it." And instead of handing them the gun, the kids are just like hovering over a computer. Yeah, and I'm just like, "Fuck, kid, okay, mm. only only what's her name is actually like hacking that computer. Yeah. Why don't you just <laughs> kick them over a gu- nudge it a little with your foot? It's little, like four inches away from her. Little little Timmy and little Jenny or whatever their names were." Yeah. 
Um, I think uh, was it Ariana Richards? Ariana Richardson. Ariana Richards. Ariana Richards. That, that, that actor. She does not get enough credit for giving an amazingly scared performance <laughs> in this. Her screams in this movie are absolutely like spine tinglers. Mm-hmm. She is so believable. She didn't show up in a lot of movies. Uh, Ariana Richards. No, she was. Uh, she had a small role in Tremors, she or was, one of the Tremors sequels, yeah. is at least. She and then she f- actually quit to do. A, she's a painter now. Oh, cool. Well, good yeah. for her. Yeah. yeah follow, follow I, I looked that up. I was curious about yeah. that. Like, what, what happened to her? She was, in a, she was in a really good movie, a, a young adult movie called Angus. Yeah, that that's very a good fond one. Of, but, that oh, was shot at my junior high. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Yeah, it was not, also like mid to late 90s, that movie. Yeah, I was in junior high around the time that was being filmed, so that was kind of funny. Oh, I, didn't, okay. I don't remember seeing her or any of the other stars or whatever, but I remember uh, them filming it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, she's really good. Uh, the dinosaurs are really good. Just dinosaurs. But, you know, <laughs> good dinosaurs. <laughs> I did like uh, the the dig they took at Velociraptors in an episode of The Critic, mm. where uh, oh. they, 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 <laughs> they they jump out of the way of a Velociraptor, and it jumps into a freezer, and they slam the door, and they turn a key, and they lock it in, and they say, you can't lock a Velociraptor in a closet, it's too smart. And we, we, they, we pan back over to the door, where the, the Velociraptor is trapped behind it, we see a newspaper slide out underneath the door, uh-huh. we hear bang, 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 the key falls onto the newspaper, he pulls the newspaper back <laughs> under the door... Here, click, 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 and then the, the dinosaur just <laughs> lurches out again. <laughs> so freaking hilarious. It's really amazing. Yeah, that's... And, but it's the same way in the movie. It's like, that's okay. We're safe from the Velociraptors. Unless they figure out how to open doors. Mm. Click. Yeah. It's the next shot. <laughs> it's so damn great. Mm. Um, there's, a, there's a wonderful homage at the end of this movie that I don't think most people have picked up on. There aren't a lot of movies predating Jurassic Park that are about paleontologists. Mm. But there is one in which a paleontologist has a remarkably chaotic and scary weekend. Mm. And it concludes, last scene, with uh, the paleontologist and, uh, and well, someone who will be his girlfriend. Mm. On top of a uh, brontosaurus skeleton. And that skeleton, they end up trapped on top of the skeleton and it wobbles and it breaks and it's all hanging and stuff. Yeah. Do you know what I'm talking about? I remember the scene. Yeah, Bringing up baby. Bringing up baby. The end of bringing up baby, mm. much like the end of Jurassic Park, ends with a paleontologist hanging for dear life on a giant Brachiosaurus skeleton mm. that is now hanging and in, in pieces and collapsing and stuff mm. and his life is in jeopardy. Okay. There's nothing else that that could be a reference to. Like, th- I know Spielberg knows movies. <laughs> I know he would go, and this kind of like bringing a baby. Yeah, let's run with it. This is fun. Uh, I, I don't it's, remember that scene from bringing a baby. It's the last scene. Uh, it's, it's not, it doesn't have the. It doesn't have the. Um, I thought it was an homage to one of our dinosaurs is missing. One the, of our the, dinosaurs. The Disney film. Oh, I don't know that one. Oh, yeah, where there's like microfilm hidden on the neck of a dinosaur skeleton, and bad guys are after it. Is that on Disney Plus? Probably not. We should do that on not on Disney or, Plus. That's or maybe that's not one of our dinosaurs. Let me look that up. <laughs> look that one up. I'm curious about this. Um, but uh, in any case, I'm pretty sure that's an homage to bringing up baby. I would be surprised if it wasn't. Hmm. Um, okay, so I'm just trying yeah. to think if there's anything. To, oh, the other thing that in the, I was when I was watching this movie that I kind of noticed for the first time. Oh, yeah, here we go. 1975, a group of spirited British nannies become involved in a race with the inscrutable Chinese intelligence service. The prize is a top-secret microfilm hidden in the skeleton of a dinosaur on display in the Natural History Museum. Is it Disney? Uh, it is. It's on Amazon. It's not on Disney+. Plus. But is it Disney? Is it supposed to be Disney? 
Uh, yes, it was it was a Walt Disney picture. Okay, I'm making note of that. We're going to get to that soon. On the, on, <laughs> on not, we have we have next month's not on Disney Plus decided, but I'm yeah, going to totally make that. Uh, it's Peter, called one of our dinosaurs yeah, is missing. It's Helen Hayes and Peter Ustinov. Nice. That sounds amazing. <laughs> I cannot wait to see that. That sounds great. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing I was noticing when I'm watching this movie from the perspective of an adult. Uh-huh. An adult who understands that, in addition to being, you know, a commentary on not just dinosaurs, but amusement parks and monster mm-hmm. movies and sci-fi. Um, an adult who understands that this is also, in some respects, a movie about the hubris of capitalism, isn't it? Mm. And what you realize is that the whole reason why this nightmare begins in earnest, not just things are broke, but people die, uh-huh. is because Dennis Nedry, played by uh, was it Wayne Knight. Wayne Knight, yeah. Yeah. Dennis Nedry is going to steal embryos of dinosaurs mm. for a rival company. And the reason he's doing that is because Hammond isn't paying him enough. Yeah. And I know that seems like, oh, how ungrateful he is to that wonderful man, John Hammond. And then you think about it and you find out that when Dennis Nedry actually explains all of his responsibilities at this park... All of the incredibly innovative, unique computer systems he has had to create from scratch, Hmm. apparently all by himself. And when he complains that he's not being paid enough, John Hammond basically tells him to shut the fuck up. I don't care about your financial problems. Yeah. Dennis Nedry should have been getting paid more. (laughs) Frankly, there isn't a good reason not to pay that guy out the nose. I mean, yeah, he's an asshole, but he should get paid for the work. Mm. And if he had been paid for the work, none of this shit would have happened. Instead, Hammond decided to cheap out Mm. on labor. You spend all that money creating dinosaurs, and you cheap out on the people who actually work at your park. Fuck you. Yeah, I, I remember. In, in fact, the whole thing kicks off because he's trying to avoid a $20 million lawsuit. You made dinosaurs. Hmm. And you don't even want that, to pay for the guy who got killed at the beginning of your movie? That's that's the joke of the film, isn't yeah. it? About how this is all just a capitalist em- enterprise at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's that wonderful, uh, wonderful roundtable scene where Hammond and all the characters are in, like, their... Whatever it's like, the private VIP dining room, and yeah. there's like slides on the walls, and yeah, they're like all... straight up stop making sense. It's weird. Yeah, it's a, this this bizarre like black space. It looks like you know avant garde theater, and uh, they're going around the table, sort of explaining how this is a bad idea. And John Hammond says, "I thought you'd all be on my side. The only one on my side is the blood sucking lawyer." And that's a laugh line. Yeah, <laughs> but it also shows that the only reason this exists is for financial reasons. Yeah, the only person who would have absolutely no problem mm. with this theme park and see no problem with it. Well, there's two. One, kids. Mm. They just want to see dinosaurs. They don't give a shit about any of that. They don't mm. understand any of that. They just want to see dinosaurs. On the other one, blood sucking lawyer. Mm. Guy who only cares about the bottom line. And I know that there are good lawyers out there. That guy is not a good lawyer. No. <laughs> that guy is an asshole lawyer. No, and when you look at the way the series continued, first there was the Lost World Jurassic Park, and mm-hmm. it's a, that was about, like, hunters. Who, uh, but they also wanted to profit from it, and eventually... Yeah, they wanted to take the dinosaurs mm-hmm. off of the park and show them on the mainland, oh. which, of course, goes real bad because the dinosaur escapes mm-hmm. and ravages uh, San Diego. Yeah. Uh, you begin to see a lot of parallels between uh, the Jurassic Park movies and the Alien movies. Mm-hmm. A big part of the Alien movies uh, is that the creatures themselves are essentially weapons. And that's actually a big theme of, of the Alien series, especially when you get to Prometheus. Yeah. You realize that these things are weapons. They were bred to be just killers. Yeah. And there's always some shady company plant 
who is there to get one of the weapons back to home base. And of course, every time they try to do that, the creatures are too yeah. much for them to handle and they all die. Because it's not a machine. It mm. actually has agency and it doesn't mm. give a shit about anything that you want. Or, or whether or not it has agency, the fact that you think you can wrangle this monster is kind of a, well, a ridiculous I, notion. That's what I mean. When I say agency, mm. I, I don't mean that it's like picking its college major or anything. <laughs> I just mean that like it can decide not to do what you want it to do. Yeah. You know, it's a creature. In in the first Alien, the first two Alien movies, I got the sense that the aliens didn't have thoughts, really. Mm. They were like, they were like bugs. Well, the Queen, the Queen was clearly had some intelligence. Like she understood that like fire could kill my eggs. Mm. You're threatening my eggs. If I let you go, my eggs live. It understands at least that much. There's something I I didn't like about that movie. Oh, the the creatures were like all of a sudden a little bit more human. It's like, I don't want the monsters. That's not that much human. I think, I think some animals can understand Oh, mm. I should avoid you because you're dangerous. Mm. That's not that crazy, dude. No, well, but th- then it like goes for revenge is a little bit. Well, goofy. You, a, a lot of animals would do that. You you like break their nest or whatever like that. Mm. They'll like, come after you. That's animals do that. It's no. a maternal instinct. Or or you get away. They're not going to chase you. Uh, if, but what else gonna, did she do? You killed hunt, all the eggs she was hunt, taking. Hunt care you of. down and find you. Well, they doesn't have to hunt her down far. They just ran down a hallway. You just start laying more eggs. That's what an animal would do. But yeah, uh, I'm sure. I'm sure it'd be very forgiving. You killed all of my babies. Well, that's my point is... Eh, guns. The, the vengeance instinct isn't something that animals possess. At least not not writ large. It's not something all animals possess. Uh, I'm, also, I'm sure it's an alien, but okay. Well, yeah, it's also a creature. <laughs> uh, but my point is I like them better when they're animals. And I, like the, I also like the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park when they're animals. Yeah. But by the time you get to... Fallen Kingdom or Jurassic Manor, which is what they should have called it. Or even Jurassic World when they're, like, reasoning with the Velociraptors. Yeah. Like, there's this incredible bit at the end of, like, Fallen Kingdom where the Velociraptors had decided uh, to follow the Endoraptor. Mm. Like, oh, no, that's the new Alpha. This is great. And then, like, they start killing everybody. And then the Raptor Blue, like, Mm. runs up to Chris Pratt. And you can just see that there are subtitles. (laughs) And Blue is just like... Hey, Chris Pratt, good news! We're following the Endoraptor now! We're killing all the humans! And then it just cuts to Chris Pratt, like, scowling, like, Nah, bro, we're not doing that. And it cuts to Blue, like, wait, are you sure? Cuts to Chris Pratt, Nah, we ain't doing that. And then the Blue looks at the Endoraptor, He says we're not supposed to kill all the humans! Endoraptor growls. And Blue's like, oh, fuck that! And they, like, it's ridiculous! They, sh- they should have had subtitles. Like, uh, one, one of the only good things to come out of uh, Cameron Crowe's movie, Aloha, mm. was a scene where the, the two male leads, uh, like, interact. But one of them is kind of like this bohuncular jock type who doesn't talk a lot. Yeah, uh, John Krasinski. Yeah, and yeah. and they have a he has a few conversations, but they just sort of gesture and like cock their head a little bit. Yeah, but they're both dudes, so they're not saying anything. So the film provides subtitles, like I understand why you're here and why why you want to see this woman that I'm living with, but understand that I'm the one in charge now. I understand you're the one in charge now, and I respect the authority you have, but you understand that there's always going to be a little resentment. Yeah, I respect that. I'll come in for a hug. There's no, no actual... <laughs> That's true. This is no the actual dialogue, but yeah. There's two good things in that movie. That is one of them. Mm. The other one is when they destroy a nuclear-powered space satellite with the power of 70s rock. <laughs> such a stupid-ass movie. That movie sucks. <laughs> Aloha is so, so bad. It's so bad. <laughs> Oh, I can't wait. Yeah. Ten years from now, they're going to be some hot take that says it's good, actually. Yeah, and I'm going to be like, no, 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 no. no. I, don't think, I don't think people are going to come around to Aloha. I don't think it's likely. Um, but we, uh, people do come around to Jurassic Park. It became mm. a, big, uh, a big hit at the time. It became a big nostalgic hit. Jurassic Park changed the way people see midnight movies in a lot of ways. Because yeah. uh, about 
15, 20 years later, films like Jurassic Park and Back to the Future started to make their way into rotations as midnight films. Now, yeah. midnight films used to be really out on the edge. Yeah, the things that you couldn't, movies. Things that you couldn't see during daylight hours because you couldn't accept them. If you wait until midnight and maybe you're a little drunk or a little high, yeah. those things are a lot easier uh, to accept. The, so you get the, stuff like Pink Flamingos and El Topo. Yeah. And, and, that's when the weirdos can come. Yeah, out. and they do Racerhead. Yeah, yeah that's, that's you know, everybody else is in bed. All the normies are in bed. But you're right. Jurassic Park and like a few other movies of its ilk mm. suddenly started like, we could cater to this sort of nostalgia market for people who liked seeing those movies in a theater, can't see them in a theater anymore. And would very much like to see them in a theater again. Mm. So we're going to put out Jurassic Park. We're going to put out Terminator 2. We're going to put out Die Hard. And all of a sudden, the midnight movie scene starts to revolve way more around movies that kind of don't need a cult. That that were huge hits. Yeah. Yeah, That people had already seen numerous times. There's nothing whatsoever wrong Mm. with seeing them in a big theater. But they started shoving out all of these oddities in which the midnight movie scene was kind of their only hope to ever find a big So if you were into those oddities, it was kind of a little disheartening to see heavy rotation of stuff like Jurassic Park. But it became a big hit. Uh, It's... Now you can get Funko Pops of all the dinosaurs and all the characters. Mm-hmm. They're making yet another sequel to it. Yeah. And uh, Jurassic World uh, rel- banked so heavily on nostalgia, I think, at the time it was the highest earning, highest grossing film of all time. Until a few like Avengers uh, films sort of surpassed I, I don't it. think it was number one of had, all time. It had, it had, had the uh, highest opening weekend, I think. Yeah, the like, highest really... worldwide gross. Yeah. It made half a billion dollars in one weekend, which was unheard of at the time. It's... Still it's ridiculous. Still, still pretty ridiculously high. It That's did, absurd. It did open in all worldwide markets on the same day, which is yeah. rare for a film. But sure. yeah, um, all of a sudden we lived in a world where you could have a half billion dollar opening weekend. And that forced <sighs> so movies down this dark path, which has now been ceased by the coronavirus. You know, uh, it was it was it was a standard where all of a sudden studios wanted that. Yeah, and it's weird when like levels of success that should by all means be considered obscene and rare mm-hmm. become the things that studios are trying to strive for because then if you don't hit that your movie is seen as a failure. Yeah, you look at something like Star Trek Beyond, which you know it didn't make a billion dollars, and when did they ever? Like they're not. <laughs> it's not really a billion dollar grossing franchise. You gotta you gotta scale your expectations back a mm-hmm. little bit. Whereas Jurassic Park, I mean the original was Jurassic Park. One of the highest grossing movies of all time. One of the biggest hits of all time. I understand that the standards are pretty set are set pretty high for the sequels. Mm. So, Jurassic World, yeah. good on them. I, I don't I don't completely dislike mm. that movie. There are things it does really badly, but mm. there's also things in Jurassic World that are really fun. But uh, what I take from Jurassic Park is its storytelling. I think yeah. it's really well paced. I remember when they re-released it in 3D. I was struck at how slowly edited it was compared to a lot of the action thrillers I had seen in recent years. Yeah, it's very, it's very 3D, patient. Yeah, and, and like, yeah. it was like 2016 or so, somewhere around there. Yeah. They re-released it in 3D, and uh, I guess it was 2013 for its anniversary. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it, it just didn't resemble the way blockbusters look anymore. It was no. completely different. It, it felt really kind of old-fashioned. Yeah. It was well-suited to 3D because of the slow editing and mm-hmm. careful framing. I was impressed by the 3D in that film. I yeah. think they did a good job with that, yeah. Uh, and, uh, so it's, it's kind of odd then that Jurassic Park, and this is going to tie it into Star Wars, finally, uh, how Jurassic Park, for being so meticulously crafted and for being so character oriented and for having such a great tone should set the precedent for the return of Star Wars in the form of the Phantom Menace, which is really weak with its characters and Mm -hmm. is really kind of not not incredibly terribly interesting to look at and mm-hmm. is really differently edited than something like Jurassic Park. Well, it's weird. All that... we're taking from mm-hmm. Jurassic Park when we're leading into the Phantom Menace is the technology. And 
it really kind of serves to uh, illustrate what different filmmakers Steven Spielberg and George Lucas are yeah. when e- even though they work together so frequently. When you think about it, uh, Jurassic Park has some of the most innovative visual effects in movie history. But they're used sparingly. There are huge, mm. huge chunks of the movie with no visual effects to speak of. And when they show up, they make all the impact in the world. When you look at The Phantom Menace, the mo- and again, Spielberg, uh, Lucas was also inspired to do the special editions and like add CGI monsters to them and stuff, mm-hmm. which is, again, I just yeah. want, I don't care about those, new, I don't care if those new versions exist. I think it's shitty that you're like not releasing the old mm-hmm. versions as well. That's the only thing I complain it's, about. Well, the, the special editions were a fun experiment. Can, yeah, exactly. Can we... Uh, Will this film feel the same if we have modern special effects? Yeah. And give it a new it coat was, of paint. Yeah, and it was all under the auspices of, well, this is how I always wanted it to look. Bullshit. Ah. Uh, you had what you had at the time, and yeah. you made the movie you made at the time. Yeah. Uh, if you might have wished you could have had this technology, yeah, may, maybe. Yeah, you know, if, that would have been cool. But if you're looking at your old movie and thought, "Gosh, if we had CGI back then, I would have made it look differently," but you mm. made the film you made. And like, there's a this, lot of like stories about like screenplays to hit movies that had a lot of really crazy ideas, and then they were just like, "There's literally no way." Oliver Stone, like the this, writer yeah. of Conan the Barbarian, to like make those snake men and make it look cool. So they just mm. have to be cultists who like snakes. Yeah. Okay. And now they could do it. Now they could fill a room with CGI snake men and yeah. motion capture, and it would look pretty convincing. Yeah. Um, but uh, but it feels like George Lucas is George now Lu- more interested in the technology than the story. Well, uh, well that, and that's what the Phantom Menace really illustrated, like, high, high, or I guess it was the special editions that really highlighted it. Yeah. People were going to Star Wars because Star Wars, uh, yeah, it was visually exciting. It had you know, cutting-edge special effects. But we also liked the characters, didn't we? We liked yeah. Luke Skywalker, and we liked Han Solo, and we liked Princess Leia. We even liked uh, the, the Sasquatch. Uh, Chewbacca. Chewbacca. Sorry. Jesus, Whitney. <laughs> it's a Sasquatch. I like he's, the Sasquatch. He's, he's being funny, folks. Uh, but, uh, he knows it's Chewbacca. But uh, when we saw the special the special editions, a lot of people kind of bristled at the idea, partly because of what you're saying, that he was yeah. actually actively erasing the original versions. Yeah. And uh, there, it wasn't long after those films were released theatrically that they announced, you're not going to get the old versions anymore. Yeah, they used to re-release and, Star Wars on home video every year or two, and yeah. now it's like, from now on, you can only get this new version. Yeah, Everyone's like, like uh, wait, what? But, but I, I like... I don't. I, I like your version, I, but the I, your original is the one I want. I don't like that new scene with Jabba the Hutt. It actually kind of ruins all the build up to Jabba the Hutt because you talk for two movies about how scary this Jabba the Hutt guy is, but now you've added a scene in which Han Solo literally walks all over Jabba the oh, Hutt, steps on his tail, and Jabba is completely ineffectual about it. That's just not as good storytelling as what we ended up with. Yeah. I, I care about that way more than I care about Han shooting first. I also think that was a mistake. Yeah. But, um... Oh, what was the the, the weird word they added to, like... They, like, oh, remastered uh, it yet again? What was it? Uh, like, was it, it wasn't Kerplunky. It was, it was uh, McClunky. McClunky! <laughs> All of a sudden, Grado says, McClunky. Wait, what? Why did you say McClunky? <laughs> Why would you add that now? What's, what did you get out of that? That's <laughs> so, a weird bit. But yeah, uh... So George Lucas kind of he, he turned Star Wars into a special effects house. I mean, we had Skywalker sound, for instance, or, or in, oh, yeah. Industrial Light and Magic. Mm-hmm. Uh, he 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 used Star Wars to start making special effects for other movies, and I think he became really obsessed with tech. Maybe, maybe because he was always a gearhead. Yeah. He was into cars when he was a kid. And he was mm-hmm. always interested in technology. THX one one three eight was about turning humanity into a system. Yeah. You know, yeah. like, he's always been fascinated by technology. Mm. Fair. But then he became the system. And yeah. uh, the, that's what the special effects in uh, in the special editions really highlighted. Yeah. Which, and it, yeah. 
it also, if you look into the history of what the special editions were all about, it was all done for legal reasons. Mm. Uh, <laughs> George Lucas was trying to freeze out an ex-wife. Um, no! Who co-owned the movies. And so uh, if he made the special editions... She that could, would be technically uh, a new film, a Star oh, Wars the special a edition. Move. That's also why they retitled it to be Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope rather than just Star Wars. They changed the title okay. of the movie. I don't know how true they, any, add, I they the added on this. That, this. This. A, a lot of this is hearsay. A lot of this is is apocryphal. But this sounds really convincing to me that he was trying to freeze out an ex-wife who owned the rights to Star Wars. He took Star Wars off the market, so she couldn't make any money off of it. Okay. And now we have Star Wars, the special edition as Star Wars. Okay. It was actually very, very calculated. I have no corroborating research mm-hmm. on this. I'm just going to say, yeah. uh, if so, he's wrong, please correct us. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm, we want to be I'm right. Sh- surely somebody out there has a lot more details on this yeah. than I do. This is just sort of the story that's been passed to me. Yeah. But, you know, I, but anyway, I, I, I have no trouble believing it. Anyway, get, but, Getting back to the actual movies. I, we, we, again, it's not like George Lucas didn't have a story to tell in the prequels. Of course he did. But what I think is interesting is that the story he ended up telling is less about the characters because the actual interpersonal drama Hmm. is the least effective part of those movies. Hmm. They actually feel very stilted and sort of implausible. The romance falls completely flat. They're they're badly written. People are framed because he was filming against green screens, Mm -hmm. especially from episode two on. But there was a lot of green screen work in the first one as well. Although that one did have some practical sets. Uh he's sort of limiting how far he can go visually with his physical actors. They can only walk so far because the green screen set is only so big. Yeah. They're not interacting with their environments in any kind of meaningful They're way. They're not even necessarily interacting with their so, co-stars. So when, whenever they, there's something like big and dramatic happening, you can't really cut around that. You can only, f- so no matter how dramatic the dialogue might be, it's always filmed on these very flat angles. Yeah. But the point I was actually trying to get at was that when you look at George Lucas as a technical filmmaker, someone who is interested in, sort of complex technologies, uh, the inner workings of systems. Mm -hmm. The prequels are about more than the characters. They are about the fall of a political system. They are about the fall through various uh, economic uh, disputes and civil wars and um, sort of the insidiousness of fascistic politics. It is about the collapse Mm -hmm. of a larger social system. And I think... To the prequels' credit, they're pretty good at illustrating that. I just don't think they do it with a good story. Mm. I think the story that they end up telling is more compelling when you break it down into like a short paragraph than when you actually are watching it. Mm. But when you describe what happens in it, it actually sounds pretty cool. It sounds like, wow, how ambitious and exciting and and Shakespearean and tragic. Yeah, the outline is fine. Yeah, but in the end, it feels like he got really caught up in the technology and he will even like people will talk about it. like he's not really hands-on with his actors the way a lot of other directors are mm-hmm. um so it, those films came out the way they came out and i think something like jurassic park which showed him that he has the freedom to focus on this technology and expand what technology could be i mean jar jar was uh, uh, yeah say what you will about mm-hmm. the character massively forward in the kinds of interactive CG characters that we could have, where all of a sudden people are not just running from a CG creature, but interacting with them, having scenes with them, shaking their hand. That was something that was pretty much impossible for the majority of film history. And now it's a thing. Mm. Um, So in any case, Jurassic Park had a major impact on Star Wars as we know it 
today. Everything from the special editions onward. Yeah. Um, and um, Spielberg, of course, is a close friend with George Lucas. They worked together on the Indiana Jones movies. Story goes that Spielberg was even offered a chance to direct one or more of the prequels. And he just said, no, nah, it's George Lucas's thing. Mm. Who knows what could have happened? Would have been interesting to but see. Spielberg doing it. Well, I mean, Star Wars... Like, Star Wars and, and Raiders of the Lost Ark feel so much of a piece yeah. that it would be kind of hard to see how... It wouldn't be, have been too different if Spielberg had directed Star Wars. I think I think Spielberg. First, I think Spielberg cares more about personal journeys than George Lucas does. Yeah, uh, and the way that a personal journey is conveyed through a story, even something like Jurassic Park, which is in very many respects a monster movie, you are seeing a lot of characters mm. shift and evolve and go through intense emotional experiences in mm. a way that we just don't get in the prequel movies. Yeah, you know, I'm, it's just it's just not as maybe Anakin, but like that's it. Everyone else is a bit more flat, mm. you know, in terms of their actual arc and journey. So like maybe it'll peak right at the end when Mace Windu yeah, is like, just like maybe I'll go to the dark side yeah, all uh, of a sudden. <laughs> right? well, please I've, uh, I watched um, Red Letter Media's video on all the the Star Wars prequels because mm. they're hilarious and I love them and okay. and they're been watched a lot. You probably seen yeah. it too, and you listeners probably watched those videos. Uh, they rather rightly point out in those videos that the Phantom Menace in particular doesn't have a protagonist. Like, who's the one main character? Yeah. Is, is it is it Qui-Gon? Is it Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan? Because mm -hmm. they're out of the movie for a, a big part of it, and mm -hmm. a lot of the film takes place without their knowledge or effort. Yeah, Padme uh, could be. She could have this, she has this whole sort of Roman holiday thing going where she's pretending not to be queen so she can go out and have adventures, but we're not with her in the midst of that journey. We're not actually open yeah, with we, her and seeing what she's going through so, so she's also a supporting player it's yeah. you could say that uh anakin skywalker is the sort of the main character of the that, second that half that yeah that three film set of films yeah. but uh yeah he doesn't show up until halfway through the movie and yeah. he doesn't have any sort of like direct like he has a a bit to do in the climax but he has no actual like broader understanding of the plot like, around he's him. kind of just all foreshadowing like that's yeah. kind of it and look I, I think Phantom Menace has some definite things to recommend it, but storytelling-wise, we've talked about it before when we talked about the various serials that we've reviewed. Mm. It's kind of a throwback to just this freewheeling plot. Who's he? Yeah. Like, just throw them in one situation after another and just see if we can entertain you and maybe surprise you. Mm. But, yeah, even Flash Gordon had a protagonist. Like, you're right. There is nothing... There's no one really driving that forward. And I suspect that someone like Spielberg or whoever had directed The Phantom Menace, there might have been a bit more emphasis on making the protagonist clearly Obi-Wan or the protagonist yeah, well, clearly... Because that grounds you. Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah, look, say what you will. Luke doesn't show up for a big chunk of Star Wars, but once he does, it's his movie. Yeah. And before that, it's we still have these, like, underdog protagonists who where we are with throughout the entire film. They are our narrators. Yeah. So to speak. Uh, but... When we when uh, the Phantom Menace came out, it changed blockbuster cinema forever. Yeah. Uh, now everything it, special effects have been completely unshackled. We mm -hmm. could do whatever we wanted visually yeah. in a film, provided we had enough money and time to work on it. Yeah. Of course, you know, films with even more CGI came out after the, the Phantom Menace, mm -hmm. and it was really really bad. I remember yeah. uh, when The Mummy Returns was released. Oh yeah. Uh, I remember. I remember Roger Ebert's review. He says a lot of. There's been a lot of talk recently about how good special effects are getting, but I think we also need to have a conversation about how bad they're getting. That's true. <laughs> the, it, everyone was taking sort of like the, the easy CGA yeah. way out of things. Jurassic Park looks pretty darn good mm -hmm. today. The majority of it looks really good. Occasionally, there's a wonky shot, but like 
it still looks pretty good today because they put a ton of care they, into it. Yeah, they well, they, they half-assed nothing, and they did everything they could to make sure it looked as perfect as it possibly could. And as a result, yeah. it looks pretty damn good. Spielberg was really careful. He yeah. knows that you know characters and moments are the things that are going to sell this movie, mm-hmm. not just the special effects. Because there are plenty of movies that have unbelievably breathtaking special effects that people don't give a damn about. Yep. You, your, your Jupiter Ascendings, your Valerians, mm-hmm. your Mortal Engines is mm-hmm. uh, Movies we your, all your, liked. Your, your John Carters. <laughs> yeah, these are movies for the most part that you and I like, but yeah. you know, just didn't get yeah. sort of the, uh, the, the cultural traction that perhaps they should have. Because and, they didn't connect on a human level. Exactly. Yeah. And I think what the bad thing that uh, George Lucas inserted into the blockbuster conversation was that spectacle superseded character. Yeah. Now, when you're making something like Speed Racer and the characters are really sort of thin, that's part of the aesthetic. And I think yeah. that's okay. If the style is your substance, mm-hmm. that's one thing. I wonder but sometimes... Yeah. I don't think that's what's going on with something like The Phantom Menace. I think we're trying to tell stories of characters, but George Lucas, even though he's looking at something like Jurassic Park, which is actually very carefully constructed, he's not taking the important lessons from it. And all of a sudden we're more concerned with the tech than we are with the people. Yeah. And now we live in a landscape where the technology is, is the message. Well, I do think it's worth noting that, uh, when Disney took over the franchise Mm. and by the way, I'm not saying, we're not saying George Lucas doesn't care about these characters. We're just saying that there, he made limitations as a storyteller at that point in his career. And that's fair to say. I think it's a reasonable critique. We can agree to disagree on it if you want. Um, and of course, uh, you know, he worked on the Clone Wars and he tried to expand the universe that way. And kudos, I guess, to that. I wish it had been more in the movies. But um, I think when Disney took over, I think they tried at least to make it more character focused. You look mm. at The Force Awakens and yeah, the plot's a bit repetitive, but the characters are really engaging and likable and memorable. Yeah, you can complain all you like about how they're ripoffs or they have yeah. really simple uh motivations but you know how they're feeling in scene to scene and yeah. you know how they're going to react I, to certain I, situations I very much care about Rey and Finn and mm. Kylo Ren and Han Solo and Princess Leia mm. in those new trilogies and then later on uh, Luke and Rose as well I care about them yeah. and I think that's something that they understood was incredibly important is that these we need to ground these spectacles in something human which is one of the reasons why I don't particularly care for Rogue One is because I find a lot of the characterizations to be really brisk because they kind of have to serve just this plot and then get out of the way. Mm. And they don't really feel like we get to enjoy them being alive. Mm-hmm. Solo for has a lot of flaws, but I like it when the characters are just hanging out. Yeah. There's good stuff there. It's a wonderful cast. It's fun dialogue. It's Maybe not all the foreshadowing dialogue. That's kind of dumb, but like... It's murky. It's badly edited. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's bad stuff in Solo, yeah. but they also understand that we really want to see Han Solo and Lando Calrissian hang out. Because mm. we never really got to see them like, in, their, in their prime, do that, did we? And they're fun together. And I like that. That's, <laughs> that's the fun stuff. Yeah. Do more of that, please. Um, you hear they're talking about doing a Lando Calrissian uh, TV series starring uh, Donald Glover? I hadn't heard that, but it doesn't that's, surprise me. Apparently, they really just talked about that today. Maybe that's a, I don't know if it's a rumor or if it's uh, official or not. But uh, if yeah, so, they're, they're, I'll watch that. So it, I like Tom Glover. So you can say say what you will about... I know a reaction to the Disney Star Wars films has been... I guess you could say it's mixed. A, yeah. lot, a lot of people really loved it. They were huge hits. All of the movies you, were huge hits. You could say that about the prequels, too. Yeah. There's a, they're, they're hit and miss depending on who you talk to. You know? I, I suppose so. I, I, I think those are just 
unilaterally terrible movies mm. just because they're so badly written and so badly told the and, prequels, and yeah, the prequel films and they're, they're, the visuals actually aren't interesting yeah. despite the tech, the convincingness of the technology uh when Disney brought it back, they kind of, uh, and this has been, you know, a lot of critics noticed this, that uh, The Force Awakens was a remake of Star Wars, and it was just sort of reestablishing that Star Wars could still be interesting again. Yeah. And as such, yeah, the characters are interesting. The scenarios are kind of interesting. Okay, it's another Death Star. That's boring. Yeah. But, uh, okay, just do, Whatever. do your thing. Yeah. Uh, at the very least, those weren't as technically obsessed they're still technically obsessed. Right. But they sort of take the technology as read. Yeah, we'll do some really cool, amazing things. But we're not saying, hey, Ma, look at this dive. They're just going to put it in there when it serves the story. Yeah, Or, you know? or, or they'll, they'll do it to add like a lot of you know, curly cues and flourishes but, I mean, when is they're not a pretty simple story. They're but not at least asking they're... you to, to applaud just yeah. the visual effects. They want to tell the story with the visual I've, effects. I've, I've made this metaphor before. A story is like a clothesline and the film is the quilt you hang on it. Mm. You, you're not there to necessarily see the story. You're not there to see the clothesline. But it needs to be taught to hold up the movie. Uh, that's an interesting that's, way of looking at it. That, that's, you know, that's, that, that's my metaphor. You can take the film school. I'll have to think about uh, that and see if I fully agree with that. But that's yeah, not bad. Because I don't think people are there necessarily to see the story. Because stories are, yeah. in, in a lot of cases, kind of interchangeable. Especially with Star Wars, where yeah. it's the same story again. And sometimes stories are flat out bad, but mm. we don't care because we're having fun. Yeah, yeah. You know, look at a lot of slasher movies of bad storylines. Yeah, so That's not things, why we're here, man. Things like directing and character yeah. and tone. Tone yeah. is, I think, the biggest thing people are going to see movies for. Yeah. Uh, I, so I, I think they were smart enough to start focusing on story and character again. Not hugely scintillating, but they kind of shook off the legacy of Jurassic Park by the time we got to The Force Awakens. Interesting. Because they were trying to do old pre-Jurassic Park Star Wars again. Yeah. Jurassic Park did influence the way George Lucas could use technology to make his movies. And he made them worse. Arguably. Ar- ar- I suppose Let, arguably. I don't, I don't know too many people who prefer the special editions over the original who have seen both. Yeah. I don't... I, I guess there is a, a generation of defenders of the prequel films, but you'll find even more people who lambast the prequel films and say that in they're your not experience. As, in my whenever, experience when we talk about like more people prefer this or this movie oh, is over true. underrated it's entirely that's that's more subjective than almost any other form of criticism because hmm. that's entirely based on who you've talked to and if you only know people who prefer the prequels to the original Star Wars movies, what Whitney just said sounds like bullshit nonsense from an asshole. <laughs> but for those of but us I, who actually but I, know... But I'm, look, a, I'm a critic. It's my fair. job to spew bullshit I, nonsense. I, I, that's, that's cute. But I do think it's worth yeah. remembering that, again, we're critics. When we make subjective statements, there is an understanding that we, of course, are all adding in my opinion. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, that we can be confident in our opinion, but it is obviously still an opinion. Hmm. Um, and yeah, there are some people who really, really love those prequels on their own merits. I'm not one of them. <laughs> I think Revenge of the Sith is mostly okay. But uh, yeah, I don't think they're great. But um, in any case, Jurassic Park was a key reason why they exist at all. Yeah. Uh, next time on episode zero. By the way, Jurassic Park, really good. If you haven't seen it recently, watch it again. Just oh, to be clear. It's, it's pretty, amazing. It's a pretty dang good movie. I so glad we watched it. I had so much fun. I've seen, <laughs> it, I've seen it a dozen times. It gets better every time. It's so good. Uh, but next time, we are going to be talking about a different, innovative sci-fi spectacle that in- inspired not just Star Wars, but generations of science fiction enthusiasts. We will be talking about Fritz Long's silent classic, Metropolis. 
been kind of an elephant in the room for a while. <laughs> we, we need to get this one going. We need to get back to that because yeah. that's a big one. The trouble is, it's it's little known art film from the 1920s or 30s. Actually, there's uh, some people who might actually agree with that statement. They have no idea. Like, a little known art film. Oh, okay. no, some people don't watch silent it's, movies. It's, it's, it's fun, one. Of, it's know? one of the like biggest, most important, most influential science fiction films of all time. And it still plays really, really great today, mm. and uh, it's pretty easy to find, so I mm. hope and if you haven't seen it, you take the opportunity yeah. to watch it before next week, because I, uh, it, and there's the, try to get the most was, complete cut. That's I was going to really say, useful, I, I yeah. encourage you to seek out the version that's called The Complete Metropolis, which uh, is as complete a version as I think we'll ever get. They yeah. found a lot of footage in a castle somewhere. Yeah. They cleaned it up. They edited it back into the film. Yeah. They included some plot points using stills and intertitles to sort of fill out film uh, bits of the film that are just, as yeah. far as we know, just lost. Metropolis, like many, 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 many movies, even going back to the silent era, had a lot of like big edits and cuts and things over mm. the years. Sometimes so, yeah, uh, the, initially, the, you know, when people say like, oh, it's so horrible when movies get taken away from the directors. It is. It's just nothing new. Mm. And if we're going to get mad about one, we should get mad about all of them, shouldn't we? And uh, Metropolis is one of the key offenders here. I've seen many versions of Metropolis over the years, and the so-called complete edition, which is as complete as we can find, is the best. The pacing's yeah, better. Yeah. There's amazing sequences. You, you, under, you understand, like, all the subplots yeah. in the movie. If you uh, only... The Giorgio Moroder yes. version is, yes. is fun. <laughs> so much fun. It's, it's really fun. It's more like a, like a remix than a, a new rendition of, well, of It's worth noting, Metropolis. by the way, Giorgio Moroder is, a, uh, um, is actually a musician, who is a great musician and he's worked on some of like the best soundtracks of all time. He worked on Top Gun. Mm. Um, and uh, he put together a version of Metropolis, I think in the early 1980s, mm. uh, that was at the time the most complete version. Like they're, they're, okay. yeah. So um, he put together a version of Metropolis that uh, had, it's been called, you know, edited down, but it was pretty darn good for what we had. Uh, with you know lots of tinting and lots of sort of psychedelic things that were added. Tinting the film was actually a pretty common practice in the silent era, so this wasn't that weird. But it featured a soundtrack by people like Freddie Mercury, hmm. Adam Ant, Pat Benatar. With it's a trip. It's a fun watch, but probably not the one you want to start with because it's not really what they intended initially. <laughs> it's its own thing, hmm. but it is cool. And if you've never seen it, I do recommend seeking it out because that was one of the when I was a kid. That was one of the three movies I rented most. There was George okay. M. Roder's Metropolis. All right. There was Toby Hooper's Invaders from Mars. And then I think it was Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Those were the three movies <laughs> I watched more than any other on VHS as a kid. And we were constantly renting them from the warehouse or wherever we could get okay. them. So, um, I'm trying to think. Well, I watched The Wizard of Oz a lot. Yeah. That, that made it its way into our house. Yeah. I, I watched the hell out of Batman. Oh, yeah. Like Tim Burton's Batman, but who didn't at the time? Yeah, and it was on TV a lot after a while, too. It was easy to find. Metropolis, yeah. you had to rent. I, I remember when Batman came out. Uh, the poster for Batman didn't have the title on it, and mm -hmm. I think that was the first time I had noticed that happening. They just had this big stylized version of the Batman logo, and that mm -hmm. was it. Just a big bat. And, the, nice. and, the, and the, the video box was the same way. It was just this very stark, minimalist thing with just the Batman logo. I was like, yeah, this is awesome. <laughs> and what I ended up doing with the Batman VHS is I, I, it was in one of those uh, cardboard slipcases. Yeah. I put it in a clamshell and Ooh. I pulled the paper out of the clamshell and decorated the back with my own Batman cover. Nice. <laughs> I, I love me some Batman. Anyway, 
getting back to it. Metropolis will be next week on episode zero. Thank you, everybody, for listening to episode zero this week. Thank you, everybody, uh, for especially if you're a Patreon, patreon.com. If you're a patron, if you're a patron mm. at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, we have exclusive content there. You can support the show, you can keep us running. We couldn't and wouldn't be doing this without you, and we're very grateful to you for that. Um, and of course, you can email us letters at critically acclaimed.net if you want to talk about anything we discussed on this podcast or just anything in general. We might re- read your email and respond to your. Uh, questions, concerns, critiques uh, on a future episode of We've Got Mail. We are also on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Alright, uh, thank you everybody for listening and may the Schwartz be with you. Ah!